to folks and learn his wonderful insights and So here you are. Thank you so much, wonderful students, CSU faculty and staff, for being here at this event. It is an honor to see you. I also know that we have among us some very important people who are among Dr. Ford's circle. Thank you for saving this date and time on your calendar, for making the time amidst your busy schedule to be here. I appreciate and honor you so much. Thank you so much. For those of you who don't know Dr. Ford, Dr. Ford has spent around 12 years as a pastor, around 14 years as the president of a college in California, around 15 years of life coaching for government officials and business leaders in the DC area. He is the author of three, three books. My favorite book is Known, which he has co-authored with his lovely wife, Ruth Ford. It's called Known, Finding Deep Friendships in a Shallow World. It's something I read very often. I highlight it, underline it, and use it for my own practice of relationship building. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom through this book. Dr. Forth is often described by his mentees as the man, the myth, legend. <laughs> <laughs> Among his mentees, there is a common they say, Everybody needs a dick in their lives. I am so glad and honored that today we have the dick in our lives. Thank you so much. Same three answers, fame, achievement, money. 
They've done an, a now 80-year longitudinal study, perhaps the oldest one in history, of, of what actually made them happy. And they came to this conclusion, good relationships, period. And that was it, having quality relationships. Within the arc of relationship, friendship to me is the deepest, and I want to talk about that today. But it's not easy to get there. Shakespeare said this, words are easy like the wind, faithful friends are hard to find. So we live in this tremendously challenging <coughs> It's high speed, it's high tech, it's high intensity, it is hyper-connected. Six years ago, I was sitting at breakfast with two or three CSU students and I, I said, so give me a word that describes your age group. This is six years ago. And this one kid said, overwhelmed. And I'm thinking, Really? My parents, my parents' group was overwhelmed. They had like the First World War, the Great Depression, Second World War. What do you overwhelmed? He said information. Yes. I said, I get that. There's been more new information created in the last two years than in the history of mankind. And it will happen again in the next two years. So it's just overwhelming. And we get so much of it all the time from all the sources. I said, but you're so connected. I said, you got Facebook and Snapchat back when Facebook was in. Facebook and Snapchat and this. He said, yeah, I'm connected with a lot of people. My problem is I just don't know how to start a conversation. And when I think about that, I think about what Dr. Sherry Turkle of MIT, who studied this for 20 years, says in her book, Alone Together, Why We Expect More from Technology and Less from Each Other. Technology proposes itself as the architect of our intimacy. Digital connections and the sociable robot may offer the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. Our network life allows us to hide from each other, even as we are tethered, even as we are tethered to each other. So friendship, relationship, is the opposite of hiding. Relationship is the opposite of hiding, and it carries these two things that most of us crave. I believe we're designed for it. Authenticity and vulnerability. What's real? And tell me about it. Those two pieces. Hermann Hesse, the German author, said it this way, when the ways of friends converge, the whole world looks like home for an hour. The ethic embodied in relationship or in friendship, I believe, is love. You say, really? We're going to go there? Love is such a squishy word. I said to our grandkids one time, love is an accordion word. And they looked at me and said, what's an accordion? <laughs> <laughs> what I mean is love for me, I love pizza. I love climbing horse tooth peak. I love the Pacific Ocean. I love whatever, you know, sort of that kind of word. I'm not talking about romantic love. I'm talking about the kind of love that stays with it. When you listen to a 320-pound lineman, when they've just won whatever the game is, say it. You know, the, the, uh, the reporter will say, so why do you think this happened? They say, we just love each other. I'm saying, really? When you listen to how great companies work best, it say that the people in leadership are friends. When you, when you think about a combat veteran, who says, 
I'll fight for flag and country, but that's not what I'm about. I'm about, if I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down with these guys, with these buddies. I have a young friend who's now in his mid-30s. I met him when he was 23. He's in the Airborne Rangers. He graduated from Fort Collins High School. He was on the front page of the Army Times three years ago as one of the 10 most decorated soldiers since 9-11. He has three purple hearts for wounds. He has five, as of this past week, bronze stars, one with a V for valor. And any of you who know the military know that you just don't happen on a bronze star. And he has two silver stars earned in the same month. When I went to his wedding in Destin, Florida, the military reservation some years ago, where you signed the register, there were three pictures of members of his squad who were back in the day who had lost their lives in Afghanistan. And they were there when he was getting married. They were there, and their families, at least one of the families, was there. Because that kind of love, the kind of love that goes into the hard stuff, is what I think of as the ethic of friendship. It's the kind of love that sends a young mother into a burning building to save a baby child. Love is an ethic that focuses one place, <coughs> focuses on the other's good. I want the best for you. You're my friend. That's the ethic mm -hmm. of a relationship. That's how it works. So let me give you a definition of love. Love is the accurate estimate and the adequate supply of another person's need. Mm -hmm. Love is the accurate mm -hmm. estimate and the adequate supply of another person's need. I'll share this one other slide with you. All of you in this room lead somebody. You will lead somewhere sometime. You lead now and all of that. Leaders, this is not my definition. This is a friend of mine. Leaders are people who select noble objectives and pursue them with such intensity and sacrifice they carry other people with them. Leaders are people who select noble objectives and pursue them with such intensity and sacrifice they carry other people with them. So here's my deal today, okay? This is my deal. I am suggesting that to, that to select friendship is one of the noblest things you can do. You can interview half a dozen, 150, 50-year-old men sometimes it's hard to find one who says, I have one friend that I can really count on. So, leaders are people who select noble objectives. But the question is, how do we get there? I suggest we get there by stories and baseball. <laughs> okay? any, any Major League Baseball fans here? Do you know what today is? Today is the earliest opening day in the history of Major League Baseball. March 28, 2019, all 30 baseball teams are playing, and it's going to be 31, counting us, because we're going to play baseball. <laughs> <laughs> so let's play ball. Back in 1972, when I was 30 years old, Ruth and I were given a trip to Sorrento, Italy, to a conference. I had never been in a small group. I had never understood how those worked. Now today, everybody's in little groups that collaborate on stuff. But there was a guy who gave us four ideas, and he put it in the shape of a baseball diamond. So these, uh, this talk, within the next 40 minutes, I'm going to give you four ideas 
and two questions. Okay? Four ideas and two questions, and that's my gig. Here we go. First base, if you want to have a relationship or a friendship, is history giving. Or today, more commonly, and when you think about relationship, this idea is at the heart of who we are. This is Ursula K. Le Guin, who's a sci-fi writer, died a couple years ago, and she said this, the story from Rumpelstiltskin to War and Peace is one of the basic tools invented by the mind of man for the purpose of understanding. There have been great societies that did not use the wheel, but there have been no societies that did not tell stories. So, authentic relationship and friendship starts with a simple question. It starts with a where, W-H-E-R. <coughs> Everybody has a where. I used to say to people, for first base, because I wanted to hear their story, I used to say, so, what do you do for work? Well, that's a crummy place to start. Because if they just lost their job, or in D.C., like, you're in transition. They don't say you lost your job, but they'll say you're in transition. The, that's not a good place to start. So I started saying, so where were you born and raised? That's a good place, because everybody was born and raised somewhere, even if you moved around a bit. Until I ran into a, a former captain in the Coldstream Guards in D.C. Those are the guys with the bearskin hat, guard the queen. Very British. I said, Anthony, where were you born and raised? He said, I was not raised. Pigs are raised. <laughs> <laughs> I was brought up. So since then, I've seen where you're born and brought up. Now I've shifted to where is home for you originally? <laughs> I was born on March 17, 1942, three months after Pearl Harbor in Alameda, California. When I was three years old, my parents went as missionary educators to South India. And there I spent my first three years in a British boarding school up in the tea plantation. And I was talking to Dr. Albert. Um, we have something in common. That we both went to school about 10 kilometers apart, about 40 years apart. <laughs> and she was smart, and I just hung out. <laughs> it was a British girls boarding school. They let little boys go there till they're 10, and they figure out those are girls, and then they ship them to the in your life, I'm telling you it will take you on adventures. You'll learn stuff. You'll learn things that you never could otherwise know because that person's not going to write a book or a track or some kind of thing. But when you ask the right question, so where are you from originally is sort of a key question. Because when you ask that question and you start sharing your story, it becomes what I call a Velcro ribbon. When you start sharing things about who you are, other people attach to it. So I'm working with some Japanese leaders, some folks were over in Japan, we're at a five-star hotel, and we decided to do small groups. They said, these folks will never do small groups. They're very close. I said, well, have you ever tried? They said, no. I said, well, let's try it. Let's have Ko Koji was very high in their economic system. He's a guy about this tall with a beatific smile. And so we just, we just role modeled it. So you have six groups or eight groups of six each around the room. And these are industrialists and members of the Japanese diet. I'm a kid from East Oakland, California. I'm way over my head in this group. But if you ask the right questions, sometimes you get in a group like that. And so I just said to them, 
I said, Koji, where were you born and brought up? He said, Dick, I was born in Tokyo. Brought up in Tokyo my whole life. And where were you born, Dick? He said, I was born in Alameda, California. And the Japanese man in perfect English from over there said, that's near Oakland, isn't it? I said, yes, how do you know that? He said, that's where IBM trained me. We went ahead and did our stuff. When we were done, he came straight up to me, and I'm speaking to the president of IBM Japan. And we're buds, because he knows where Oakland is. It's not silly. When you tell your story, people find out where they connect with it. For example, this question. What did you do for fun as a kid? Anybody, just talk to me. Just shout it out. What games did you play for fun as a kid? Skateboard. Loud, loud. What? Skateboarding. How many skateboarders do we have here? Okay, a few. <laughs> How many video game players do we have here? Okay, now we're here. What else? What did you do for fun as a kid? Reading. Reading. How many readers? How about fort builders? How about tree climbers? How about people who shot stuff or hooked stuff? One time, a lovely blonde lady in the front row said, I rode pigs. Oakland, <laughs> <laughs> California, pig has a whole like, different. Uh, I said, Where were you brought up? She said, On a farm in Iowa. I said, How do you ride a pig? She said, Well, you just get up on the trough and wait for a 400 pound sow to come. You don't want one's just had a litter because they're mean. And you jump on their back and grab their ears, and off you go. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody starts laughing about 200 people in the room. And, uh, I said, just for fun, anybody else here ever ride a pig? And like five guys came out. <laughs> just for fun, anybody here in, in the overflow ever ride a pig? Did you raise your hand? I'm telling you, there's a whole fraternity in the world. Raise the pig. Why are you talking about that stuff? It's you know, you, in some cultures, clearly you wouldn't ride a pig. But the idea is that we connect at places we don't know we connect until we start telling stories. How many of you here were raised in a family with three children or more? Okay, just, just keep your hands up for a moment. And when I get to your number, put your hand down. I've got one older sister. Okay, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nine? Right here, ma'am. Were you nine, eight or nine? Eight. eight. How about here? Eight. eight. We have anybody more than that? We have two two eights here. I think. What's what's your first name? Nora. Nora and Silas. Silas. Let's let's hear it for Nora and Silas. <laughs> I can tell you two things about yourself, depending on where you are in the birth order. One is you know how to eat fast. <laughs> second, second is. You know about hand me down clothes if you're further down in the room. <laughs> say, what does that have to do with anything? Nothing if you don't want to be my friend. But the thing about telling your story is that you tell all of your story. I can tell you one sen I can say one phrase to you and it'll change how you see me. I come from a broken home. Probably half of us in the room get that. Or from age five, when I was in a British boarding school until age 28, I was a severe stutterer. I stuttered horribly or well, depending on how you view that. <laughs> but if anybody in the room has had a speech impediment or does, we're together. If anybody here was scared because they don't know what's going to happen when a, house, when a home breaks up, we're together. Okay. 
It, it isn't in the places of your successes that people connect with you. Mm. It's in the places of your suffering mm. that people connect with you. Because all of us know that. Not very many of us know real successes in some, you know, we have our own share. But this idea of connection at the place where I've heard is a profound thing. I believe I see people, I've changed how I see people. Somebody asked me one time, who are some of your favorite authors? And I said, a few. I said, but actually I have two libraries. I have the one that you can check out or download. But I have this other one that doesn't have tree skin on it. That's a, those are called secondary resources. When you write a paper and you cite somebody, cite a reference, it's called a secondary resource. If you interview somebody, that's a primary resource. I have a whole library. Some of them are sitting here in the front row. I know these folks. They have human skin, and when they tell their stories, it has emotion, it's got passion, it's got joy, it's got anger, it's got frustration, it's got history. There's something about the library you're sitting next to, the walking book, the memoir, if you will, that is profound to read. And the way you turn pages in that book is to ask the right kinds of questions. When I, when I think about story, when I hear your story, I begin to understand your ethics. I met, a, I met a woman four weeks ago. I had read of her, I had seen her, I had heard her, but she was um, born into a black community, Birmingham, Alabama, back in the 1950s. In the 1960s, Birmingham was the largest segregated city in the South. It was the place where Martin Luther King wrote his letter from the Birmingham jail. It became known as Bombingham in the summer of 1963 because bombs were going off all kinds of places. And this young woman was born into a middle class home. Education was a high priority. And um, her mom taught her piano. She learned to ice skate. She learned to speak French. Uh, she ended up, they moved to Denver. She ended up going to Denver University and taking Russian studies and um, at age 27, she became assistant professor at Stanford University. And by age 38, she was the provost of Stan Stanford University. So provosts run the campus. Presidents raise the box. Provosts, this is very simple. Provosts <laughs> run the campus, okay. And then she became the first female national security advisor to a president in our history and the first black woman Secretary of State. Her name is Condoleezza Rice. And I had the privilege of having a public conversation with her the first week of March. And I had read her memoir, this book, Condoleezza Rice, a memoir of my extraordinary, ordinary family and me. And I just asked her before we started, I said, Dr. Rice, she said, please call me Condi. I said, well, please call me Dick. And so that, that <laughs> that thought that I wanted to bring to her, I said, I, I just want to give you a sentence or a phrase from your memoir, and I encourage you to read this, by the way, and you just give me the context. So I said, Italian. She said, my mother loved Italian opera, and she wanted me to have an Italian musical name. She thought of, I think it's Andante, it means slow, but that, you don't want to name your daughter slow. <laughs> then she thought of Allegro, which is fast, but in the 50s, <laughs> <laughs> she said, 
<laughs> she said, so she came up with Condolcesi, which means to play with sweetness. And she shortened it to Condoleezza. Dr. Condoleezza Rice is this, this iconic person. She's just, um, just fun, right? And so I said to her this from the book, you are a ray. Because I wanted to see what shaped her. What are the ethics of her life? She said, my mother's family name was Ray. And they were a proud people. And they always had a car. And my parents always had a car. Because in segregated Birmingham, if you were black, you sat in the back of the bus. And they were determined they would not sit in the back of the bus. And when I went out, when I went out for an evening with other young people, she said, they would always say, remember, you are a ray, which means you're proud, you walk tall, you act honorably, you tell the truth. Those were her ethics built into her from that family. The ethical part of your story shows up when you tell your story. The thing about history giving, and I got a bird here, okay? The thing about history giving is, this is not Facebook or some other social media entity. You, you, if you want a friendship, you cannot curate this. You cannot just tell me the good stuff, your best self. You cannot do that. If we're going to be friends over time, I'm not going to tell you all my junk right at the front end. <laughs> I can't even remember all my junk, so it's your time. No. But, but the point is, if we're friends, we learn over time the things that shaped us, either the good things where people left their positive fingerprints on my soul growing up, or the things that hurt me, and I'm trying to work it through, or maybe I think I got past, whatever it is. A friendship over time shares those things. I think that's why guys oftentimes, men and women in the military under duress, get so close. Because if you think you're gonna die in 72 hours, <coughs> there's something about sharing your heart with somebody close by that is profound. Some people say, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to tell my story because I have scars. If you're looking for somebody that is not scarred, you're on the wrong planet. You can't tell by looking at somebody their story. You can't tell just by looking. You know, I, nobody here. This is Darren Atterbury, who's our city manager, a good friend. You wouldn't know just by looking that he was brought up in Northern California. He has a great love for the Oakland Raiders. <laughs> you would, this is Dr. Chris Melby, who's in the nutritional science department. You wouldn't know. You think he teaches nutritional science. He does that. But he goes to Ecuador and works in villages with people to help them increase their, uh, their ability to have good nutrition. And then on the side, he climbs mountains. I don't mean like horse tooth peak or even a measly 14er. He like he, he does 20,000 foot peaks and he teaches in your nutritional science department. Or my friend right here, this this fellow right here. He's a, <laughs> he's a Dr. Mark Bowster, just retired as a plastic surgeon. He and his wife from South Africa. And a number of years ago, he had an accident with a model airplane and a rotor of a helicopter went through his left eye and blinded him. And he was back in surgery for, for somebody else within 10 weeks. And he's an outstanding world-class plastic surgeon who does cleft, cleft palates in babies. You wouldn't know that just by looking at him. There's this other guy that uh, 
a young woman was sexually assaulted decades ago, and she had a baby as a result. The baby was put in an orphanage, and at age five, that young boy was adopted out to adopt a family. And 50 years later, he went looking for his mother, found his mother, called her on the phone. First three times, she hung up. Last time he called, he said, I'm gonna leave my I'm going to leave my number. You don't have to call me back. And if you don't call me back, I'll not bother you again. I just wanted you to know, thank you for giving me life and that I've done well, that I'm okay. Because he had gone on to become a, a police sergeant in this town and then be a member of the city council and then be mayor. And now he's finishing his final term as a city council member. Ray Martinez sitting right here. He told me I could tell this. He wrote it in a book. And he said, I'll never forget that next morning. And I said, you don't have to call me. If you don't call me, it's okay. The phone rang. I picked it up, and it's my mother. She's in tears. She's weeping. And she says, Ray, this is your mother. The sweetest sentence I've ever heard. You just can't tell by looking at people what their stories are. You have to, you have to hear the stories. And you don't just have a story. You are a story. Some people say, I'm, I'm trapped. You can be, but I would submit to you, we don't have to be trapped, but we're absolutely shaped by our stories. I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna hurry on, okay? Friendship is born at the moment when one person says to another, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. That's that Velcro ribbon, okay? You say that thing, and that's what happens. Telling your story gives friendship a chance. Without your story, friendship has no chance at all. No chance, no chance at all. Okay, second base. This is a four dollar word, affirmation. And by the way, at the end of our time, I'm gonna race through this and we'll have five minutes if you have questions or comments or say, you know, I think that was a dumb thing you said about this. I'm old and I won't remember that you said that. <laughs> affirmation is a four dollar word that means I like you. When I hear your story, I start knowing where to love you. When I hear your story, <coughs> I start knowing where to affirm you. So let me let me just share three kinds of affirmation real quick. One kind is words to you about you. Words to you. So I'm dating this girl named Ruth Blakely from Modesto, California. We're in this little college on the coast of California. I'm feeling pretty insecure about our relationship because I'm a stutterer, right? And one night we're driving along, I said, Ruth, you pro pro probably would, 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 wouldn't want to keep, keep going because I can't talk. And she looked at me and smiled very sweetly and said, oh, really? I haven't noticed. <laughs> and she was dead serious. And it started unlocking my door and letting me out. And now I just run off of the mouth. You know, I got all these words stored up. <laughs> words to you about you. Little kids, they've done studies. You could split a first grade class in half and say to one half, you know, you really need to do better, you're not quite doing well, and the other half, you're doing great, and within a week, these kids will start tailing off. Because what you hear when you're a little kid, you know this, what you hear when you're a little kid from those people who are adults that we think are gods, right? It shapes how we see ourselves. Second is actions toward you actions for you. 
to graduate school, there was a conference coming up. I'm working on a master's thesis. When you're in graduate school, you're poor, right? I'm newly married. You're really poor. You're newly married. And uh, my prof, my advisor said, are you going to go to such and such a conference down at the University of Illinois? I said, I'd love to, Dr. Lois, but it's $100, or excuse me, $50 for the week. This is 1964. $50 for the week. I wouldn't go without Ruth. And she just got up. She was a single woman, 57 years old, just a sparrow of a woman, PhD from NYU, and she walked into a back room, and she came back, and she took my hand, and she opened it up and laid five brand new $20 bills in it and said, you, you take Ruth and go to Urbana to that conference. That $100 changed the trajectory of our lives, that $100. You never know what an action towards somebody does. Third is an action toward your world. An action toward your world. I'm this young guy near the University of Illinois. We're now there, and I'm doing all these things. And by this time, we have four kids. And I come into the house one day. I'm 30 years old, and I'm tired. And it's back before briefcases. It was, I mean, before backpacks. It was briefcases. And I just toss the briefcase on the, on the couch, and I fall belly down on the front room floor in my three-piece suit, which was what you did back in the day. When you fall belly down on the front room floor and you have four kids, if they're teenagers, they go find mom and say, dad, root it out. <laughs> but if, if you're a little kid, if you have little kids and you fall belly down on the front, what do they do? Jump. Yes, why? Because the giant has laid down. <laughs> That's two and a half times taller than the preschool. That'd be like a 15-foot high guy walking into this room saying, oh, all right, I'm good. You cleaned your room? No, but I'm just going to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we start playing the trick game. That's when you spread eagle yourself, and they run around, jump over your arms and legs, and all of them look at you, raise your arms and legs, and trip and knock them down. So that's in California. No, no. The kids love that game. They don't have Vern Clark, who went 
Ruth and I lived in D.C. from 1993 to 2008. And Vern um, was a, was the son of a friend of mine, and he came to the Pentagon as a three-star admiral, he ended, and he ended up running the Navy. When you know somebody who runs the Navy, and you go and visit them, you don't have to have any credentials. People think you're important when you go and visit people who are important. And I loved coming out of his office because there'd be generals and admirals waiting to see him. And when I walked out, they'd all stand up. I'd say, sir, I'd say, fellas, all right. There's something about the covenant that is powerful. So I walk into his office when he's just become head of the Navy. 800,000 military and civilian personnel, $120 billion budget a year. He said, I'm just going to talk to my admirals. And I say, these young people raise their right hands and say this. They pledge this. What do we pledge? What do we give them? And he said, I'm going to tell them. We do not exist to just cut a fine silhouette on the horizon. We exist to train you with the very best training you can have to give you the very best leadership skills you can have and the very best equipment you can have. And we want you to know that to serve is a noble thing. To serve is a noble thing. There's one of those noble objectives, again. So, covenant has three parts, and I don't have time to go into all of it. Time, friends take time for each other. Tenacity. I remember one time I was feeling discouraged. I wanted to quit. I just so I had felt wronged. I would, you know, and if you haven't gone through that, you will go through that. And a friend called me up and said, "Well, you can run as far as you want, but I'm going to hunt you down. I'm going to be on you like ugly on an ape. You are you. You will not be able to get away from me because that's what friends do. They're tenacious about you. And then truth telling. Here's the ethic in covenant." I tell you the truth at three levels. What I know, what I think, and what I feel. I'm a guy. This is a generalization. Please don't take me to task on this. But my, after 45 billion miles walking with men, we will tell you what we think pretty quickly. <coughs> we will not nearly as quickly tell you what we feel. And feelings are a lot different than that. And Maya Angelou, the poet laureate, said it this way. I will, I will forget what you told me. I will forget what you did to me. But I will never forget how you made me feel. So when you're, when you're friends, you tell them, you know, I know, I know who you are. I think you probably were just shooting off your mouth. You were just tired. You didn't mean that. But what I feel is that you didn't take me into account when you unleash that barrage or whatever it was. But I know, think, and feel. Those are the key ways of truth telling. Home plate is dreaming. And I apologize for rushing. There is uh, there's more information here than probably you need to know or that I have time to share. Oh, let me, let me just do this real quickly. You say you, you can't, let me come back here just for a moment. You see, you just can't go around affirming everybody because sometimes people are creepy. <laughs> so how do you deal, how do you deal with conflict? 
the guy who wrote a book some years ago named Augsburger, David Augsburger, and he called the book Caring Enough to Confront. Conflict isn't bad. Conflict is what happens when you have human beings in the building, okay? <laughs> this is neutral. How you respond to it makes the difference. One way to deal with conflict is to say, I'll get you. I'm right, you're wrong, I'm gonna get you. Second way is I'll give in. You're always right, I'm always wrong. I'm just gonna assume the prenatal position, fetal position, suck my thumb and eat worms over here in the <laughs> The person who does this is not helping the relationship. Neither of these things help the relationship. The third thing is I'll get out. I'll get out. That's the way it's gonna be. I'm gone. I had an old couple one time from the South, and they said, Meanwhile, I have this here relationship that if things ever got hot in the house and got into fight, I'd just go out and sit on the porch till we cool down and just, you know, we could talk things through. I said, How'd that work? He said, Worked okay. I got a lot of great outdoor living doing that. <laughs> Fourth is compromise. Let's come halfway. Compromise. The best way is to affirm the person and confront the issue. Mm. Affirm the person, confront the issue. It's not who's the idiot who left the Diet Pepsi on the end table in the living room. You assassinate <laughs> someone's character for one calorie. That's not what this is about. <laughs> Affirm the person and confront the issue. We will work this out. We just need to understand. That's how that works. Coming back to home plan, dreaming. I want to tell you a story, open it for questions, and then uh, give you the second question. I said there were four points and two questions. We've had the four points. The first question is, where's home for you originally? 243 miles from here is a town called North Platte, Nebraska. Anybody know where North Platte, Nebraska is? North Platte, Nebraska now is a town of about 24,000. In 1941, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, it was 12,000. It was the hub of Union Pacific Railway in that part of Nebraska. And um, we started moving troops within two or three weeks across the country once Pearl Harbor had been attacked. And uh, a young drugstore clerk, a woman by the name of Ray Wilson, 26 years old, heard that some Nebraska guardsmen were coming through on the train. And she said to some girlfriends, some of her friends, right? Let's make popcorn balls and cookies and we'll just take them down and we'll give them to the guys. Well, they got down to the train station. It wasn't Nebraska guards and it was Kansas. They said, well, we're not keeping our cookies. So they gave them to the guys. She went back and wrote a letter to the editor. Here was a, a young woman with friends who had a dream. And she said to the newspaper editor, I think we should meet every train that comes through North Platte, Nebraska and take them food. She went to, the, to a guy who owned a defunct restaurant there in the, uh, in the train station, and she said, uh, we'd like you to give that to us for this war effort, because they considered it a war effort. And so he did that, and they dubbed it the North Platte Canteen. You can Google this, you can go online and see. Dubbed it the North Platte Canteen, and she and other friends organized women over the next five years, from Christmas of 41 to April of 46, 55,000 women from 125 communities within 100 miles of North Platte, Nebraska, to come and meet every train 
that came through North Platte. The Army said they could stop for 10 minutes. And these women, almost all women, would bring food. Everything was rationed. Those of you younger don't, even I don't know this. My parents would know this. Everything, flour, sugar, gasoline, everything was rationed. So it was all personal donation. They would come and they would bring fresh food and they put it in this restaurant. And up to 32 trains a day would come through North Platte, Nebraska. 16 million servicemen fought in World War II in some capacity. Six million of those stopped for 10 minutes in North Platte, Nebraska, this little town, 12,000 people. It's a town of 12,000, and on an average day, anywhere between 3,000 and 8,000 soldiers and sailors would get off a train and run into this restaurant. And they said, here was food, tablecloths and food. There were fresh sandwiches, ham and cheese sandwiches, and fresh donuts, and apple pies, and cold milk, and hot coffee. I shared this at a, at a governor's breakfast in Nebraska some years ago, and many of them knew the story. And I said, and pheasant sandwiches in season. And a state assemblyman came to me afterwards and said, my mom was a little girl, and she worked there, and sometimes it was pheasant sandwiches out of season. Just want to say. <laughs> and um, back in 2001 or so, Bob Green, Chicago sports writer, wrote this book, Once Upon a Town. I encourage you to read it. It's, it's not just a slice of Americana, it's a slice of friendship and relationship. And when he interviewed these now older men in their 80s and 90s, when he said North Platte, Nebraska, they'd start to weep most often. He'd say, why are you crying? Typical story. Brought up in Brooklyn, never been out of New York City my whole life. And I, uh, I graduated on a Friday from high school, went down and enlisted on a Monday. Within two days, I'm on a train out on the prairies going west. In the middle of the night, somebody says, 10 minutes to North Platte, have no idea what a North Platte is. Said, we jump off the train, run in here, and here are girls that look like our cousins and our sisters, and women that look like our moms and our aunts, and there's all this food, and we're eating as fast as we can, and there's a piano, and somebody goes over, starts playing a tune, and somebody grabs a girl and dances across the floor. Train whistle sounds, and we race back out to get on the train, <coughs> jump on the train, and they hug us as we as we go out the door. Say, God bless you, sailor, soldier, thinking of you. We're 18, 19 years old. We're getting on a train to God knows where, not knowing if we'd ever come back alive. But for 10 minutes in the middle of the night in a place we've never been with people we've never met, somebody was kind to us. I asked my 89-year-old father, what's the quality looking back on your life that you think is most important to the, to the world working? He said, kindness. I asked a lady, same age, a couple years later. Instantly, she said, kindness. I told this story to a youth organization, their 60th anniversary. A young woman came up to me. She was a staffer for this group in Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania. She said, as you were telling that story, I was thinking of my grandpa. He was a sailor in the South Pacific. And I called my mom last night and said, Mom, do you think grandpa went through North Platte, Nebraska? She said, I don't know, honey. Why don't you call him? I called him, but she said, you know, grandpa is. My grandpa's in a nursing facility. He has dementia. Half the time, he doesn't know where he is or who he is. But I called him and said, this is Jennifer. And he knew who I was. And I said, Grandpa, does the name North Platte, Nebraska mean anything to you? And she said, instantly, he was lucid. Said, North Platte, Nebraska, you bet it does. That's the place where they had cold milk and fresh donuts, and they shined my shoes. I will never forget North Platte, Nebraska. Friendship is couched in this thing called love, which is rock hard, that runs into burning buildings, that lays down its life 
for a friend that thinks and wants the best and the highest good for that friend. In this relational baseball game, it's based on story, affirmation, covenant, and dreaming. Those are the pillars. I'm going to stop for five minutes. If you have any thoughts or questions, please toss them out now, and then I'll come back and give you the final question, and we'll be done. You can all go have lunch or something. <laughs> any questions or thoughts? <coughs> yes, ma'am. Um, I have a question. So you talked about truth telling, like yes. in the third phase. Yes. But where does like the establishment of truth between like individuals come out? And like trust. I mean, like trust. Yeah. The the question is in truth telling, where does the establishment of trust come in? I would I would submit this that as we get to know each other by tell, telling our stories and affirming each other, because nobody wants to hang with somebody who doesn't affirm them. Yeah. You know, I didn't hang out with Ruth so she could tell me what I'm not. I know what I'm not. I desperately need somebody to tell me. But when we do this, then you start having little covenants like, why don't we, why don't we have coffee, or why don't we hang out, and go to a movie, or go to whatever. That's right. And the essence of this, the essence of love is trust and respect. Trust and respect are both earned and given. That's why when there's a real problem in a relationship, trust and respect take it in the teeth, if I can put it that way. So it takes a long time, I think, in most cases, to earn trust and respect. So it's a precious, it's sort of a sacred commodity, if you will. But I think it comes out of doing these things. Thank you for the question. There's another question back here. Yes, sir. I was just wondering, a lot of us move around a lot in college and everything. We have good friends back home. Do you have any suggestions for how we keep those relationships alive? Yeah. Question is, how do you keep relationships alive from back home friends, right? It's very interesting in Washington, D.C. You get into the House and the Senate or the White House or the Pentagon <coughs> and President Obama, let's just use him, he reaches back for his college friends to come play hoops at the White House. Most people on the Hill will reach back, because once you're in power, you don't know why that person wants to be your friend. Actually, you usually do know why that person <laughs> wants to be your friend. And you reach back for the high school chums and the college chums, because you trust them and you know them, and they probably got stuff on you, so you want to keep them close. <laughs> I, I would say work at those, don't let those friendships go, because these friendships here and in high school will be some of the closest friendships you'll ever have. And if you have one or two at the end of the day, you're rich. Because friendship takes time. It takes tenacity. It takes engagement, not just a text or a tweet. It's got to be more than whatever it is. It's, you know. Thank you. Good question. Anybody else? Some other question? Yes? So I have a question. Just uh, like most of my friends are the same kind of they're comfortable friends. How do I get outside of the bubble of like having um, different friends? How do, how do you find uncomfortable friends? Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, it's, it's interesting. Uh, my wife Ruth has just gone through double knee replacement surgery. And we're sitting in, in therapy, waiting to go into the therapy. And, and there's an older gentleman sitting across from us, African American gentleman. And I noticed that he had a, a uh, Canadian sweatshirt, maple leaves. And I said, so 
are you from Canada originally? My question. Are you from, he said, yeah, I was born near Toronto and brought up, and then I came to Chicago for school, and then I went to California. And it, he was very different than I in a number of ways. But I think if you put yourself in settings on this campus where people are different than you are, it gives a chance for you, for you to, in, in my vocabulary, for me to learn stuff. It's reading a different memoir. And it, for me, I, I think being brought up in a British boarding school surrounded by an Indian culture, a Hindu culture, it, it, when I was small, took the fear away from me for people who are different. So I'm, I'm only speaking for myself. <coughs> but, but I think being in settings, gatherings, where people are different than you, that's the place to start. And, and start with the easy question, where is home for you originally? You, you say, this is very simplistic. I'm saying it's simple, but it's not easy. It takes time to press forward with it. That's a, that's a wonderful question. I had a, an older friend than I who was a mentor said, don't just hang out with people who are just like you. What can they add to your life? And I, I took that to heart over time. Thank you. Great question. Somebody else? Yes. Um, so as a professor, we work with students a lot on professional networking, which is yes. essentially relationship building. Yes. And I was excited to see you talking about kind of the professional and the personal side. Right. Um, are there boundaries, do you see, between kind of how you approach your professional friendships and relationships? The question is, in networking, business networking, are there boundaries between the professional networking and the personal networking? I'd like to ask Darren Atterbury to answer that question. No, I'm just <laughs> I'd say that's, that's a hard piece yeah. for me. Um, that the challenge sometimes with business networking is that I, I want to know you so I can meet Fred Farkle over here. I'm using you to get to him. Now, if I tell you that, then we're cool. Okay? I, I can say I want to meet you and so forth. But I think what happens is when you are satisfied with meeting that person and they know it's stopping there, there's something about the connection that works better. I can't tell you how many times I've walked into a senator's office or Pentagon or some other place and I get to know the person at the desk, the person who's not getting paid very much. But they're a real person. They're just not a functionary. If, if they don't do that, that office doesn't work very well. And so I found that, that in nurturing that relationship, if, it, if there was something needed down the road, that person might volunteer that. I don't have to ask for that. But I think that I think the line between professional and personal is hard. It, hard in the sense that most things need to be treated professionally. But there are on occasion chemistries that work where the professional is also personal. I think that's the best I can do. I wish I had a deeper, more creative answer. Somebody else? Any other thoughts? Okay. I'll give you the last one. <coughs> the second question is this. Anything I can do for you? First question is, where, where is home for you originally? And the second question is, anything I can do for you? I was in Washington, D.C. for those uh, 15 years, and for six of those years, I had an 
to young men, different young men who would come for a year, and they would be an aid to me. The young man was visiting with his father, who was a very wealthy businessman in Seattle, and as we took him back to the hotel, he just wanted to know what we were doing in town and all that. He turned to me, he was 21 years old, he turned to me and said, Dick, is there anything I can do for you? At that time, I was 61 years old. He was younger than all of our kids, and he's saying to me, anything I can do for you? And it caught me off guard. And so I just blurted out, I said, well, when you graduate from college, why don't you come spend a year and be my driver and secretary and hang out and we'll do stuff. And so, so in April the following year, I get a call. And he said, does the offer still stand? And I said, yeah. He said, now you understand. You're going to drive with me every day. You can drop me off on the hill. Sometimes I'll take you in to be with guys. If I fly places to speak, you can go with me and all that. But I'll pay you $500 a month, which will take care of your cell phone. <laughs> and, then, and then you raised the rest. And he came. And we became great friends. And he, he spoke in this room a couple of years ago. His name's Jeremy Valorant. And he uses he, he's an anti-sex trafficking agency now. But that, but that anything I can do for you question is a ethical question of how can I serve you? How can I serve you? That's that noble thing. We want to teach them that it's a noble thing to serve. If you ask that question, I can guarantee you three things. Anything I can do for you. I can guarantee you these three things. One is that your life will always have meaning. Two is that you'll always have friends. And three, you'll never be out of work. Just saying. <laughs> So in this relational baseball game, based on story, affirmation, covenant, and dreaming, and fueled by two questions. Where's home for you originally? Anything I can do for you? <coughs> when you play this baseball game, everybody wins. That's it. I'm out. <laughs>